I'm Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. This is a podcast for women who wonder how strength and weakness coexist, or how to bless both bravery and tenderness. For those longing to bring the fullness of their glory to the world without a chip on their shoulder. For those who have embraced a global sisterhood and left small storied lives behind, this is for you. The fierce and lovely women seeking the both and of a big storied life. Join me as I chat with fierce and lovely women around the world. On today's episode, we go to Chicago and talk with Rashida Graham Washington, a community mobilizer, entrepreneur, speaker, author. I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. But before I tell you more about Rashida, I wanted to introduce you to a woman by the name of Mary Bethune. In honor of Black History Month, I wanted to find a strong female African-American leader whom I had never heard of, and I don't have the luxury of time to really do all the research, so I hope what I'm about to share with you is fully accurate, but this woman sounds amazing. In 1904, she was in Florida, and she wanted to start a school for girls, and so she rented a small house for a mere $11. She made benches and desks from crates and other things that had been given to her through charity, and she opened up the Educational and Industrial Training School for Negro Girls. She had six kids um, and her son. Albert. Eventually, the curriculum had the girls rising at 5.30 in the morning for Bible study, and then classes on home economics, industrial skills like dressmaking and other crafts that really focused on helping them become self-sufficient, and their day did not end until 9 o'clock. Well, time passed and Mary became really close to Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt. In fact, Eleanor Roosevelt at one point referred to her as her closest friend in her age group. And despite segregation laws, um, during one conference, she actually requested to sit next to Mary Bethune. Well, Mary had unprecedented access to the White House uh, because of her friendship with the First Lady and really used her influence to start what became known as the Black Cabinet, uh, a group of uh, talented, mostly men, African-American men, who helped inform some of the policies under the Roosevelt administration. Uh, here's another woman, another lost story of uh, Mary Bethune, whom I had never heard of before. Well, Rashida Graham Washington, my guest for today, is a leader in her own right. She is the executive director of Communities First Alliance. She is also the CEO of Live Cafe, an artisanal destination coffee shop that serves as a community hub for courageous, authentic, and abundant living experiences. She co-authored the book Soul Force, Seven Pivots Toward Courage, Community, and Change. And she speaks, coaches, consults, and facilitates communities um, all over the country to inspire holistic and abundant lifestyles and sustainable organizations. 
questions. She is really an amazing woman, and I learned so much from our conversation, as I'm sure you will as well. Here's Rashida. Welcome to the podcast, Rashida. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here with you, Beth. I I can't wait to, to have this conversation. Um, it, it's our second go around, so we're just you know praying over the tech demons here that that this all works because you have so much rich rich uh, things to share with us. I've already shared a little bit about you in the intro, but why don't we jump in here with you telling us a little bit about about yourself, some of those details that might not otherwise be covered in in a bio for you. Yes, this is good. So I will say that I am a connector. Um, I love getting up to the work of um, meeting people and um, discovering what their gifts and passions are, meeting other people and discovering what their gifts and passions are, and then getting excited about the intersections between those people and connecting them together in a way that gets them excited about collaborating and connecting um, both um, around the things they have in common, but also um, intersectionally. I am a mother. Um, I am a daughter. I'm a neighbor. Um, I'm a community member and a community developer. Um, and um, I do all of that from a faith and spiritual context. Uh, but because I do, I believe in being inclusive um, and intersectional in the ways that I represent myself in the world. Um, I love to witness the connections that happen between people, and I'm happy to be a vessel for um, people connecting in those ways as well. Hmm. That I'm curious about that. What do you mean by being a vessel by which people can connect to others? Yeah, like I, I don't think that I am necessarily doing anything super special. But I think I leave myself open to um, what's happening around me and I allow myself to be filled up by the beauty that I see through um, opportunities for people to connect. And I pour Mm -hmm. my life out um, by sharing with people the connections I've made and ways that they can connect together, because I believe that it is through those connections that we become fulfilled in the life that we that we live. Okay, so now I'm just wondering which which trail to go down with you first, because I'm just so curious about all the things. Um, let's start just real quickly with your role as a mom, because you have quite an age range, if I remember correctly, of, among your kids, um, and they're girls. Am I correct? Yes, all three girls. Between the ages of late 20s and early teens, is that right? 28, 18, and 8. Yes. So you're in a lot of different life stages as a mother. Um, Am I right? That must be a challenge. All the time. Yes, it's true. It's like having three only children. (laughs) Yes. That is a great, great perspective. Um, And you are in Chicago, correct? Yes. I was born and raised here. And Chicago is my city for sure. Hmm. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing in Chicago as a connector, as a community developer, as a vessel through which others can connect to one another. What does that look like for you in Chicago? So for me, um, that looks like my own curiosity around how a faith-based non-for-profit 
um, a for-profit um, can work together um, to create sustainability between the two entities. Um, oftentimes, we spend so much time in the nonprofit world on fundraising and development that we don't have time to focus on the mission. And um, so Live Cafe is a for-profit entity that I own. It's a transformational community hub. And it serves as a space where um, people come together and connect the community intersectionally. But because it is a for-profit, it helps me to leverage some sustainability for the nonprofit work and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested and intrigued by models of sustainability, um, particularly for leaders who are women of color. Um, that don't rely so heavily upon foundations and philanthropy because we don't always have access to those um, partnerships and relationships um, mm -hmm. in ways that create sustainability for the work we're doing. So I'm always looking for ways to um, create viability and sustainability for the work that I do um, in ways that make the work um, accessible and um Make it where makes it where such that I'm able to maintain it. Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of the model that I operate in. But what that looks like is on the community's first association side, which is the it's a national faith based nonprofit organization that focuses on multiplying asset based community development, economic development, and equity principles. And it's a capacity building organization. So I get to travel all over the country doing teaching, training, coaching, and consulting with all kinds of organizations, school districts, denominations, local schools, local churches, um, nonprofit organizations, where I work with them on how to manifest asset-based community development principles um, within their organizations. Um, and then... And that's the work that I do at the national level. And then live is hyper local. So live is what live is where my tribe is. Um, it's my local neighbors and friends um, that live within a 10 mile radius of the cafe and a 10 mile radius of, of my home. And together we curate opportunities for people to be together um, intersectionally. Um, that we can practice living in tension together, um, having difficult conversations around race and equity and gender and faith and um, socioeconomics and art and culture, um, and that we can also live intentionally together, being purposeful about the relationships that we build um, and grow together in the cafe. So that's mm -hmm. kind of what I'm up to more often than not. Well, I love that you have kind of a laboratory right there in your yeah. local space sure. that you can work things out and then take it around the nation and, and teach out of that local experience. I think that's so important. So many leaders oftentimes lose touch with that local lived out experience, kind of hands on feet to the ground. And it sounds like you're managing both somehow. Somehow, right. I somehow. Out myself, but I do <laughs> really important work to do for all the things you just named, Beth. That I don't want to do the work at the grass uh, tips um, without intel and um, heart connection to what's happening at the grassroots. And so, as hard as it is, it often feels like I'm running up and down a ladder 
Um, I'm afraid of the disconnection that will occur if I wasn't spending time at the grassroots level. There's also a lot of accountability for me as a leader that can come from the grassroots in ways that the grass tips can't offer me. Um, and I try to um, subject myself to being a part of a community that holds me accountable um, in ways that I think are also really important. Mm-hmm. Right. It's keeping you integral, I'm sure. So what is what does it look like more practically speaking, kind of the the conversations that you're hosting at Live Cafe and the intention, which I imagine to mean action that comes out of those conversations. Can you maybe give me an example? Yes. Um, so one of the conversations we've had this year um, was a conversation around hair politics, where we put together a panel of people with different kinds of hair and talked about the ways that their hair and the way that they wear their hair impacts their presence in the world, their socioeconomics, and the way that they're perceived in different contexts. Um, There was a recent Supreme Court um, law that passed that stated that if a person has their hair in locks, it is totally legal and permissible not to hire that person simply based on the fact that they have locks. And um, so this really sparked a lot of conversation. There are lots of leaders and decision makers who live in the context of the coffee shop who didn't even know that this was uh, a law that was on the books. And so there's a lot of raising awareness for people who are in circles of influence um, that can be where their involvement in those circles of influence can be impacting people that they're not even familiar with or know about because it does not privy to the information. Um, so that's a, an example of one of the talks we've had. Also, there was a documentary called America to Me that examined the opportunity gap between black and white kids at Oak Park and River Forest High School. Um, Steve James is the uh, director of the film. And so we showed a series, the whole series of the documentary, and we had uh, panel panels participate in conversations after each of the viewings. Most of those panels were educators, social workers, um, different people who would be involved in education and the educational landscape. But we made them that those panels were comprised primarily of people of color so that we would hear voices we don't traditionally hear on the topic of uh, opportunity gaps. And Mm -hmm. then we held gatherings with the community to talk about how can we be actionized to change this this reality that um, students of color are now receiving the same opportunities to learn as their white counterparts. Um, And that has resulted in all kinds of policy changes um, in the district. And I don't think that it is, I think it's important to, to name that Live Cafe alone is not doing this. It's the people who show up to the cafe who are making these things happen. And Live serves as a sort of hub for a lot of webs that shoot out um, or are spun out from the cafe. So there are all kinds of beautiful conspirings <laughs> happening <laughs> within the space all the time. Um, just yesterday, there were probably three different campaign teams having meetings at Live Cafe um, around people who are uh, women who are running for various offices 
and um, who otherwise might not have space to have those meetings and conversations to really encourage women to run for office. So these are the kinds of conversations that are started at Live Cafe, but really are transformed into more of an activism in our community and beyond. Oh, I love that. I love that. So that really makes sense as you describe it as a, that you're curating conversations, you're creating a space where those kinds of conversations feel safe to be birthed. Um, So how is it going as a business, a kind of, it sounds like a social enterprise type of model. Um, Are you, how's it going running a for-profit business with such a community first mindset, you know, where money isn't necessarily the bottom line, but money is that sustainability piece, that economic piece is part of the vision. How's that going? It's going, it's going really well. Um, We have essentially been in the black since we opened. Um, And it's interesting. People know that we're a for-profit entity, um, but we receive donations all the time as a for-profit entity because the community and other partners within the community really value the work that we're doing and the way that we show up in the world. Um, And so we are defying the myth that if you are for profit, people expect for you to kind of hold your own. But I think because we represent values and opportunities for conversations and activity that the community supports, The community goes well above and beyond the call of duty to support that which we are about. Um, And so I will say the business is 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 doing well um, just based on the products and services that we offer. But I think I also would like to make sure that I underscore the significant involvement of the community in the vitality of Live Cafe, even as a for profit entity and really name the 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 um, shift in the paradigm that because you're a for-profit entity, people wouldn't be willing to support your work because that's happening here at Live Cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of the reason why that happens is because most of our products we um, serve are harnessed from within a 10-mile radius of the cafe. So we are hyper-local. Um, the coffee that we serve as our signature blend is woman-owned from farm to cup, and that's something we're really uh, proud of. But the ways that we partner are very intentional. So we sell candles out of the space that we partnered with Bright Endeavors to um, put together. Bright Endeavors is another social enterprise where teen moms pour soy candles. So we've curated the scents of all of our specialty lattes and turned them into candles in partnership with Bright Endeavors And when the community hears about partnership like that, they want to support it. So we have organizations who buy our candles to a hundred at a time to give gifts at the holiday season because they believe in what we believe in and they believe in the way we go about establishing our partnerships. So that's been working really well for us. And we're really, really happy uh, with the way that it's unfolding. We're turning two years old this month. um, So there's, still quite a bit of time before we can rest on our laurels to be sure. Um, But we're really pleased with the trajectory we've been on to date. Well, yeah. Congratulations on staying in the black for your first two years of being open. Thank you so much. That's huge. So you talked about, I'm curious um, about all of that because in, in the asset based 
model going into a community and right looking at what is already there and how to help those assets really blossom into fruition mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. with with live cafe mm-hmm. with bright endeavors uh, with these partnerships which came first but with do you know what I'm saying did you come in and already see a community that was ready to go wanting to engage and just needed kind of the galvanizer or did you come in with that vision and start something and then you've slowly been developing that assets or is it, or is it both? Both. Yeah. So, so what I would say is that um, the community that the communities that we are coming alongside and supporting were communities that were thriving and had their own gifts and assets and talents before we came And I would say that by and large, that's probably true of most communities, whether or not those uh, resources and assets are being appropriately mobilized is a conversation to be had, to be sure. But but I believe that all communities have resources and assets um, and that there are always people who are mobilized and active. And I believe as a person who wants to be involved in community, it's my responsibility to see where that synergy is already happening and to try to posture myself in a way where I am invited to participate. Um, and the development of Live Cafe happened just that way. Um, so I'm a product of my community. I was born and raised in the Austin community. I founded an elementary school in Austin. I taught at Oak Park River Forest High School. The cafe is located in Oak Park. I live in Berwyn, which is just south of Oak Park in Austin. So I have spent the bulk of my life in the space, this geographical context that that I'm in. Um, And so I leveraged the relationships and the connectivity that I already have to my own community um, in order to establish the cafe. From there, I think we took a posture of humility by asking the community, what do you hope that LIV would become? What, how do you hope that LIV will come alongside what's already happening here? So more often than not, Beth, when we have evening activities and events going on, it's because the community has called or emailed and said, I have this idea or I want to have this gathering or we need to have this meeting or I'm inspired to do this thing. And our role is to come alongside that and to support those uh, express felt needs that the community has shared with us. Um, So we often feel like we really owe the accolades back to the community and that we're serving as a space where that flourishing can can occur. Hmm. I love that you keep uplifting (laughs) the community, but you are a galvanizer, Rashida. I mean, that is that is your role as well. Right. Sure. Sure. Um, Um, Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. So. Changing course just a little, but I know it's part of what what you do. It's February. It's Black History Month, um, and I'm curious about the the pilgrimages that you lead. Can you talk a little bit about that? And are you doing one in the near future? Yeah. Could- so um, we do a pilgrimage called Our Pilgrimage, um, in which we take a team of people, usually from sometimes from all over the country. We'll be doing one this fall with a with a church who is only taking its own members. So it varies how we gather the people. Um, but 
on that pilgrimage, we go down south to Selma, Birmingham, Montgomery, Tuskegee, Atlanta, and we visit several different sites, the Equal Justice uh, Initiative and the museum that was inspired by the work of Brian Stevenson, 16th Street Baptist Church, um, Edmund Pettus Bridge, and, and uh, the MLK Museum, and some of those other places. But what makes it a pilgrimage and not just um, a, a tour is that we do um, facilitated conversations around what we're experiencing as we're experiencing it. And we're doing that with the objective of starting to unravel and discover and name how we will be active participants in a modern day civil rights movement. So if we were just touring, we would go, we would see, we would talk about what we saw, we would say that that was a good learning experience and we'd be done. But what we challenge um, the folks on our pilgrimage to do is to begin is to always be thinking as they're taking this trip about how this will impact their work when they get home, albeit in their local context or in the work they do vocationally or ministerially. Um, and so one example of how that has worked is um, there's a gentleman who went on the pilgrimage last year and was really wrestling with the development of a theater um, company and what production they would do um, starting out this theater company. And he ended up deciding, having taken the pilgrimage, to do a Blues for Mr. Charlie by James Baldwin, which is a, a powerful piece that really um, examines race and racism in America. And I think for the most part, he was a little bit timid and concerned about how his audiences would respond by having taken the pilgrimage and understanding the profound impact that the civil rights movement should have on us today, that was how he was mobilized as a result of taking the trip. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is the kind of power uh, we believe that taking a journey like the pilgrimage with other colleagues can have on the rest of our lives. And it is our hope to continue to offer it um, in, in the next years to come for sure. Mm -hmm. I, I love the distinction between what you do versus just a tour, because you're right, that's where meaning is really made and change really happens as a result. So is that something that you're doing under Community First? Um, yes, we do that. Uh, I do that work under Communities First as the executive director of the organization. Hmm. I want to go on one. I've thought, <laughs> I've thought about it. <laughs> um, I know... There's one called Sankofa, and they ensure that that a white participant is paired with a black participant so that you're engaging your experience with one another. Is that similar to how you do it? Do you see benefit or difficulty in that approach? Um, I've, I've actually taken the Sankofa trip um, myself, and there was a lot of value in that kind of partnering. Um, we don't do our trip that way, mainly because there is a Sankofa trip. So that is already an offering. And because of the way that we really value um, having abundance in the community, we wanted to make sure that because that was something that was already offered, how can we add to the offerings that our community um, curates and brings without 
repeating the experience that already exists. And so Sankofa does a wonderful job of, of that. But what we do is we allow people to kind of mix and, um, and mingle, interspersed through a, a, a myriad of different ways of imagining diversity. So mm-hmm. they connect across age. They connect across race and ethnicity. They um, So another thing that we do is we connect people across um, faith context and faith experiences, whereas mm-hmm. that COFA tends to be more of a, a Christian evangelical trip. Um, we invite anyone from any walk of life in terms of faith orientation to participate on our journey. Um, not because it's better or worse, but because we wanted to widen the offerings of people who wanted to experience um, a civil rights journey. Um, mm-hmm. And so we believe that in tandem with Sankofa, we've done that quite well. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. As Can I ask you this, Rashida? As a female Black leader, um, and just with this month being, it was just on our minds, right? What what would you want from your white sisters like myself um, in terms of more engagement around civil rights, more engagement around Black Lives Matter? More like what what are some things that you can say to me as a white sister that you that would mean so much and you you would want me to hear? Yes. So um, one thing that I would say, I want to I would want to speak specifically to liberal progressive white women and I would want to say that in our in our efforts to bring liberal progressive um, ways of being into reality we should not forget that we're not there yet that none of us are there yet and that there may never be a point of arrival and because of that we should dismantle the misnomer that because I've kind of taken on the label of being a liberal progressive, that I've arrived somewhere and that I know because of that way of being, I know everything now that I need to know about what it means to be an ally or stand in solidarity with um, Black women or women of color for that matter, that we should always be subjecting ourselves, that, that we should always be subjecting ourselves to a posture of humility um, and and that white women should be working diligently at ensuring that black women and women of color that they're hoping for solidarity with um, would be the ones to calibrate that on their behalf. That as as an ally, white women don't get to say whether or not they're practicing allyship well. But that huh. rather they should partner with Black women and other women of color on a perpetual journey of subjecting themselves to an investigation of that from Black women and women of color. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the question you just asked me should be a continual part of that journey and that white women should be willing to hear a myriad of answers to that question some of which will be socioeconomic. One of the initiatives that we do, uh, Caitlin Rogers is a partner of mine on an initiative called Sweet Rest. And what Sweet Rest does is it develops resources to educate white women on white supremacy 
And then we, the, the white women who participate pay to receive a subscription for learning. And then we take those dollars and we create sabbaticals for black women who hardly ever have opportunities to rest. Um, mm-hmm. And so these are the kinds of dynamic relationships that I would want to invite my white sisters into recognizing that the transformation should be happening for all of us and that it should be mutual and that it um, should be flat, that it should not be a hierarchical relationship. Thank you for answering me. Honestly, that's, I'm going to be thinking about that. (laughs) One last question, Rashida, how have you balanced in your work, um, this idea of being both fierce and lovely and how have you found those to, to work themselves out in your life? Yeah, I, I really, if I'm, if I'm candid, I struggle with the tension between being fierce and lovely, especially as a black woman in this country, because um, I think while I and um, my other black female counterparts celebrate our fierceness, I'm not always sure that the rest of the world does. Um, and because the world often celebrates me only when they perceive that I'm operating under their definition of what loveliness is, particularly as a woman, um, it sometimes causes me to push back against the lovely. Um, but what I think has been important to my journey is my own definition and redefining of terms like fierceness and loveliness in ways that I can embrace. Um, and in ways that help me to prevail above the stereotypical sort of um, static ways of seeing myself as fierce or lovely and allowing myself the freedom and permission to design and redesign, to define and redefine what those terms mean for me in ways that bring me uh, brilliance and joy in my life. Do you want to take a stab at telling me what that is, what that redefined version is? Yes, absolutely. So I have to, um, where fierceness is concerned, I want to make sure that um, I am rejecting the um, parallel that the world creates for me, that when I am fierce, I am angry, Um, or when I am fierce, I, it, it has negative or evil connotations, but that I might redefine my fierceness in a way that is um, that is um, empowering for me and in a way that allows some malleability in my identity that I'm free to change and shift and grow and evolve in that in ways that I can celebrate even when the world cannot. And I would add that that includes embracing my own sexuality and my ability to see myself as a woman who is a sexual being, um, not because men want me to be, but because I simply am and that I don't have to be apologetic about myself in that way. Um, And I think where the loveliness is concerned, I think it's important for me to integrate my fierceness as a part of what makes me lovely and not as a separate binary duality where those two things have to remain mutually exclusive. Um, And that the things about me that has caused my oppression, my blackness, um, my femininity, my sexiness, 
um, my extroverted way of being, my articulations, my prophetic voice, that it is all of those things that also make me lovely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I agree. Even though it's, it's your redefinition, it's, it's your appropriation of those two words. I agree that that is actually that bringing forth life and beauty in what you just said, because that, that is true living. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Rashida, thank you so much for talking with me today. And I'm going to point my listeners to all the spaces where they could find out more about what we've talked about and perhaps how they might, you know, engage in some of these, especially if they're in the Chicago area in the show notes. But I just really enjoyed learning from you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. This was my pleasure. Personally, I am not even sure where to begin with absorbing and digesting all of the wisdom and various things that Rashida offered us. Uh, So let's start here. Let's start with one tangible and practical application for us as uh, predominantly white women, as I believe that is the majority of my audience and you as my listeners. Let's start with this one thing. And I want to focus in on Sweet Rest. It's sweetrest.net. And I am really compelled by this concept. I think so often as white women beginning to come um, more awake to white supremacy and white um, privilege and our own white fragility. We're reading books, we're learning, we're wanting to understand. I think most of you resonate with the question I asked Rashida, what do you have for us to hear? I think often we're left wondering, what do we do? How do we move beyond this desire um, to being a true ally? And as Rashida said, we don't actually get to say whether we're being a good ally or not. But I feel like sweet rest would be one truly practical next step because we might subscribe to a monthly newsletter where we ourselves are learning and listening and lamenting and at the same time help provide for the the soul care that our black sisters um, crave and and need, and so I just I love that as just one thing to direct us to as a result of this conversation. I hope you were as challenged as I was by this conversation. This would be a good one to share with your friends and to have a great discussion. Thanks so much for tuning in. This is Beth Bruno, and you've been listening to the Fierce and Lovely podcast. <laughs>